when you have the scientists thinking for the whole world altruistically in a way and then the notion of diplomat who's somebody who really is instructed by their government to look for the best deal for their own interest it sounds incompatible but then when you see achievements like the Paris Agreement which is which was almost a perfect synergy between the science diplomacy the compromise and and no one got everything they wanted but everybody got something and and so that really gives me hope I am so happy to have my dear friend Marga Goal Solar here science diplomat par excellence um and science diplomacy is a new field it's uh well it's an old field and it's a new field uh i famously in my little life when i first met marga i asked her what science diplomacy was and she told me it's what you do greg and i'm like what <laughs> and um it's really the use it's the idea that science is a way for diplomacy which is how countries interact they can use it as a as a form of communication a tool a way to move forward right we always have to move forward whether we're, whether we're trying to build an economy that people ha- have more things and prosper in or more importantly now move forward and getting a handle on the 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 impact of ourselves on this planet because uh we are uh we were the we're out of control this planet is not designed it's not capable of sustaining it the way we're using it and the science is catching up we know that now we can forgive we can forgive the people that came before us because mm-hmm. they didn't know mm-hmm. they didn't know the consequences but now we know and there's no forgiving because we have the science that the climate is changing rapidly we're we're, we're close to a runaway runaway warming planet that could uh, melt all the ice and uh, coral reefs are uh, a lot of people speculating we won't have them in 50 years the ocean's going to be so hot and acidic the the that the house is burning down and we need to take action collectively as a as a planetary system our own planet system which the best thing we have is the UN and the UN's tools of the trade are treaties and agreements and a treaty is simply a piece of paper that's negotiated and a country signs it and then they go back to it and they they try to adhere to the principles in it as much as possible and i you know mike's mike's most vivid experience with science diplomacy uh margo was during the cold war mm-hmm. i um i had several experiences but the one that i'm thinking of now is i was it was in 1988 or 89 which is pretty much the height of the cold war it's when things were really bad between the united states and russia we were operating under a system which it's hard to believe existed uh, still sort of does i suppose but it was called mutually assured destruction oh yeah mad mad is mad and <laughs> what that meant is that we had so many nuclear weapons ready to fire or drop from airplanes that if one country were to launch one both countries would be mutually destroyed it was mutually assured destruction it meant that if anybody started the fight everybody would be gone and that the belief was that would mean no one would ever start and no one did mm-hmm. um i mean i i still think it's still in the air a little bit but it was very tense back then we had russian submarines and american submarines uh building them bigger and they would go underwater for 3 months at a time and they'd live under the ice in the arctic try to get as close as they can to fire the missiles and it was it was a crazy crazy time and right in the middle of that the united states government negotiated an agreement with a polish research vessel and poland was part of the soviet union at that time to go to antarctica and do research 
and the price was really cheap. It was this big 400-foot, uh, it was called the Professor Shedletsky, and I was part of a 12-person American team, and we were studying krill and, uh, and whales and the ecosystem around the Antarctic uh, continent. And everybody was Polish on the boat, and there was one Russian, and he was the political officer. Mm-hmm. And I soon learned that everything had to go by him. Uh, and that's very counter on any, uh, any situation. The captain usually has complete control over everything. But in this case, it was the Russian political officer. And that was an expression of the oppressive, uh, controlling Russian uh, government. So we had that at the top on the boat. But then we had the scientific team, and, and we got along great. I mean, we were all... Uh, doing our research, uh, teaching each other uh, language, drinking a lot of Polish, really good Polish vodka. <laughs> and, uh, but we were able to, you know, be at sea and uh, conduct science. And I believe we contributed to the knowledge of base. And it was, it was exactly what you, what you say. It was, a, it was an example of, of science diplomacy. And I remember two things from that trip that were, were very touching. Uh, one was... We Americans came on the boat, and there was a, I don't know, there was a lot of, it was a big boat, there was a lot of poles poles on the boat, and we had all this neat stuff, like, um, you know, uh, tape recorders and watches, and and these guys didn't have anything, you know, they really came from a different Mm -hmm. uh, opportunity level in the whole thing, and one day on the boat, uh, it came to... uh, the the tensions kind of broke out and one of the Polish uh, scientists kind of just lost it and said something about you Americans have all these things and we don't and it's so frustrating and and he kind of directed it at one of the, we had a woman scientist on the boat she had some knife that she was doing something with and it was a really great scientific knife and he was upset that he couldn't afford it in his own lab and that he was living in and he left and then she was in tears and and then my other Polish scientist friend came over and he said, oh, I'm so sorry you're upset. Here, take my knife. I want to give you my knife as a gift to make you feel better. I mean, it was just such a heartfelt <laughs> moment, you know, the way he, he, he did that. And another, another thing I remember from that trip is one night, the, the guys on the back deck were deckmen. They would work uh, pulling the lines and their hands were calloused and they were, you know, they were deck crew and they were, they were older uh, and they didn't speak any English. And they would sit around at night uh, heating up tea or coffee on the aft deck and talk. they just talk. And one night I walked by, and they were all crying. And I, I asked my Polish friend, I said, what's going on? I mean, it was the strangest thing to me. And he went over, and he kind of listened in a little bit. And he came back and said, oh, oh I know, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I said, well, what are they talking about? He said, they're talking about World War II. And they're all remembering what happened when the Germans ran into their mm-hmm. country and, they, and they, all their friends that they lost. I mean, the heart that the Poles had is just—it was a great moment for me to get that exposure to a Soviet bloc country, mm-hmm. both in terms of the socioeconomic divide that was existing, uh, but the humanity that was there. And to, to finish this off, when we got back to port, it was a time when you didn't have any communications at sea. Uh, so I was completely isolated from any news. Got off the boat, 
And I ran to one of these phone places where you stand in line and they make an overseas call. It was very expensive. I called my sister and she had had a baby while I was away. My niece, Maddie. So got some more news, came back to the boat and we're packing up, getting ready to go. And everybody says, says to me, my American friend says, what's going on? What's going on back home? And I said, oh, well, my sister had a baby. And they said, oh, that's, that's really great. Hand me that microscope. Let's keep packing you. That was it. And later that night, I went around to one of my Polish friend's cabins on the boat and walked in, sat down, and after a while, they sort of said, how's everything at home? And I said, oh, it's good. I, my sister had a baby. And they said, Greg, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell And they got all their friends, and everybody came into the room, and they got the vodka out. They opened the bottle. They threw the, to- they threw the cap from the bottle out the porthole, which means you're going to finish the bottle. And, it, you know, life was so important to them, and, and new life. was It was just such a great, you know, uh, memory for me. Uh, which was, you know, science diplomacy. Right. It it really reminds me to to my work with Cuba. In the in we've had a program that brings U.S. and Cuban scientists together before the the reestablishment of diplomatic relations. As you know, talking yeah. about the the missile crisis, right? So Cuba yeah. was another yeah. one of those um, high tension um, countries. And in, in the sixties, as you know, we came the closest, perhaps, closest, uh, definitely uh, yeah. that that we had of uh, of a nuclear war and 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 so yeah the, the maybe just quickly tell what what happened exactly unless you want me to what that crisis was for people that may not know yes yeah, so there were so the soviets had um um submarines with um missiles in in cuba well, actually they were actually they were building missile launchers on the land right yeah, yeah right and and so for it was a i think a 13 day um crisis in which it was um, almost going yeah. to happen, yeah. and then Kennedy managed so, to to avert it. Yeah. But I think it's the closest we've come to yeah. to that. And so it's a it's a, it's a diplomatic standoff that lasted for 50 years between the U.S. and Cuba, and really is the last um, remnant that we have from the Cold War in, in in terms of having the U.S. this full-on embargo and 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 making it very difficult for the two countries to collaborate. When, um, if you think about it, th- this is the closest you can get from, so from Cuba, from the tip of Cuba to the tip of Florida is 90 miles. Right. The ecosystems, the ocean, the, everything is shared, right? The hurricanes that hit the U.S., they all come from the Caribbean. So the hurricane comes up from the Caribbean and goes through Cuba and then arrives in the U.S., so there really made no sense for the two countries to not have diplomatic communication, at least on these critical issues that were of national security for both. So the meteorological agencies, for instance, do not, if they do not talk to each other, you can, um, the, the country that receives the hurricane after, it, you know, it could benefit from the... Um, that's interesting. From, the, way you say they from sh- the, the way you say they shared hurricanes. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they shared sh- everything. They shared exactly, and 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 that's why we say except, they are except except they didn't talk right. to each other. And so because they are like inextricably linked. Yeah. And yeah. and though the, the 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 diplomatic tension really made it difficult to to cooperate in things that were a win-win. So science diplomacy, for me, is this win-win scenario yeah. in which you can. Okay, you can be, you can disagree on the political, the ideological, like what happened in between the U.S. and Cuba. Of course, there were, there will never be, an, a political agreement in which we, both countries say yes, I agree with your system of, you know, economic system, your your government. 
but we can say, okay, how can we collaborate in mitigating the risk that both of us face? For instance, when Cuba, um, I think it was um, Cuba offering help after Hurricane Katrina, and, and it was, I think it was Bush, right, at the time, rejected it. So in a way, those yeah. diplomatic um, tensions really the people who suffer is at the end your citizens of both in, in, on both That's sides. Right. That's right. And so, if you don't make at least an effort to to not not to completely leave out, there's no neutrality. I mean, I think it's it's something that we shouldn't um, over. Um, I would say, I overstate. Like scientists are not neutral. Like nobody's neutral. No. Everybody has ideologies and politics, right? Right. But at least in science, and especially in shared environmental challenges like the U.S. and Cuba, the Strait of Florida, is an ecosystem that they share. So that is the easiest thing to agree on when everything else is not uh, on the table. So science yeah. comes to, to the table. So I was um, privileged to see for four years. It was, of course, the Obama administration helped a lot because, of course, there was, um, in, in 2015, the um, normalization of diplomatic relations between President Obama and President Castro. And that in automatically started, uh, a, I would say, a, a wave of environmental agreements um, that were not that would have not been possible if the scientists were not connected all along. So for 20 years, a lot of U.S. scientists and, and Cuban scientists had so they've never stopped talking. So when the diplomatic relations uh, came back, it was very easy to put something on the table of both governments and say, okay, here's an agreement that NOAA can sign on um, disaster reduction on oceans, on uh, hurricane monitoring. And science provided this easy way to come back, like with China, right? After the US and China restored diplomatic relations in 79, the same thing happened. The first agreement was scientific. With Japan, after World War II, the first agreement that was signed between the US and Japan was scientific. What was it? What was it? What, do you know what, the, what it was? I can't remember. I can't remember. I'll look, I'll look into yeah. that for you, yeah, but it okay. is... It is really, and, and most of those are framework agreements, like bilateral yeah. agreements. Like yeah. the two countries agree to set up, you know, bilateral commissions to, to work I, on science. Because I had an experience in Japan. I worked for NOAA early in my career, and I was sent to Japan to, uh, to access their, they, they had developed the world's deepest diving submarines at the mm -hmm. time, the Shinkai 6500 and the Shinkai 2000. And I was sent over on a diplomatic passport. I learned to speak Japanese, and I was placed inside the lab at the, where they had the, uh, the, the submarines to somehow, my mission was like really important but vague, somehow find a way for Americans to use these submarines. Mm -hmm. So I talked to everybody that I knew, who knew anything about Japan for advice, and probably the best, uh, best advice I got, which turned out to be true, was this guy said to me, well, Greg, he said, the Japanese won't sign anything with anybody they don't trust. And he said, if they trust you, they won't have to sign anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly yeah. what happened. I got there like the first week and I went into the, uh, the head of the department in Japanese. It was the bucho. And I went in with my kind of American, you know, style. <laughs> Looking back now, I can sort of see it. So I'm like, hey, I'm here. What can we do? When can we start? You know, mm -hmm. we've got people ready to come and use your wonderful gear. And I know you guys are open to it. And, and he said, stone, son tell you what <laughs> he said, go back out there to your desk get to know people right go to the cafeteria drink beer with everybody at night and 
And we'll talk about this some other time. Right, exactly. And the cultural part of science collaboration cannot be, I think, ignored. And and so building trust is the first step to any collaboration, scientific or otherwise, right? And so you were talking about vodka with the the Polish scientists. I had the same experience with Mojito, with the Cuban scientists, right? And so there was always a first night of um, dinner and dancing and and rum and it's really now it's it's okay it makes scientists look like they're only going to conferences to, to have fun but it's really not you have to have that piece you have to have this of trust yeah. building yeah. before you can sit down and talk business so they say oh you have to drink it depends on the culture can you, you go drink tea with them if that's the, the you know what, the you know what I think is I think it's honest conversation right. is what builds the trust because and it, ha- and it happens for a lot of people when they're drinking some people call it the truth serum, <laughs> but um, I, but I believe the thing that the builds the trust is honest conversation, where you speak honestly and, and people know you are, and they and back and forth you, and you're not playing games, and and that's you know what I I feel uh, is trust building. But in our in our world, yeah, it t- it, it can get wound up in drinking uh, through cocktail hours and whatnot. But <laughs> to finish that that Japanese story, so then six months later, I was. Do, got involved in all kinds of fun things. Bucho calls me into his office and he says, okay, Stone Son, here's like 20 days of diving time this next year for you. You bring us whoever you want to use the submarines and that's fine because we trust you. Mm. So I, there you go. I got the gold. I reported this back to headquarters and their jaws dropped. <laughs> they said, do you realize that you just accessed like $15 million worth of diving time? you know, for the United States <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Japanese submarines. Yeah. And then I solicited uh, the scientific community and got scientists over there to use the submarines. And I was the translator and, you know, the guy that, you know, stayed right. with them. Uh, it was an interesting time uh, in Japan. I made a very close friend, June Hashimoto. And after about a year, he, I, we were drinking. He said <laughs> he had something very important to tell me that he'd been, that he'd been afraid to tell me on our friendship, but it had developed to the point where we wanted to tell me. I said, well, what is it, June? He said, my father was a kamikaze pilot in World War II. And I was, I was like, well, it's, it's okay. It's, <laughs> it's not a big deal. It's, and he said, it's such a strange thing that we did, you know, mm-hmm. flying around in planes like that. Uh, right. Um, so, what else? So, one, one of the things I was... After we, I think we discussed in one of our previous um, conferences, is about this idea of scientific identity and national identity. So, for instance, you are American, yeah, but you've worked for other governments and you've advised and and perhaps helped governments against positions that the United States would hold. So, I'm always I've always been curious to ask you more about <laughs> it. If you if you want to share, like, how do you feel sure. as um, you know, because usually you get a science advisor oh. to be the same nationality to the to the, to, its own, to his own or her own go- government. Yeah, yeah. But you did the. Um, I, I, I've got a good story that I can. Yeah. I can illustrate that very question with, and it was ahead of the Paris Climate Agreement. Right. And I was uh, the I was the science advisor for the government of Kiribati. Right. And I was with the president at the time, and we were in uh, we were in New York ahead of it, and. He was asked to a meeting with the lead climate negotiator. You probably don't remember his name. I don't. But it was, he reported to Obama mm-hmm. for the United States. Yep. So he was the top guy. And he was, 
he was having meetings with Pacific Island countries, smaller countries, right. trying to, well, we didn't know what the meeting was for. But so we get into the room and they come in and they, they look at me kind of like, who are you? And my science advisor. And they didn't like it, I could tell. They didn't want to have an American over there. For, of course. And, uh, and they basically were asking the Kiribati to agree to what the United States was going to put out on the table, which was not in Kiribati's best interest. Mm -hmm. And it was a, he gave a long pitch and basically said, uh, we can't really do what we'd like to do, which is what you want, because it can't get through our Congress, and, but we want to come back with something. And, you know, this is what it is, so would you please support this? So after the meeting, I was asked for my advice. And the first thing I did is I, I gave him a read on their comfortableness. I said they were very uncomfortable. They did not believe what they were saying. I could tell, by the way, yeah. that's, a, that's something that they couldn't detect because right. it's not their native language. I, they were, there's something about it, you, could, you know when someone doesn't feel comfortable with their, their own words. Right. And that was... That was good advice and i said and they're they're offering you nothing and and uh you know they don't get that, that it's an existential threat for you mm -hmm. they're looking for something that'll make them look good right. i said you know i would stick to your stick to your guns don't don't get swayed by that um yeah that was a very interesting moment thank you for asking about that that's what i love about you margaret <laughs> you've got you've got the a very specialized view of, of the world and how it works, and it's a really important view right now that we need. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, to me, the contrast. So scientists are very, or usually, thinking globally, and the science is, is not pertaining to a particular country. Even if you are funded by a government, you think about your science as a global enterprise and global collaborators. But then diplomacy, traditionally, uh, is about national interest. And so... When you have the scientists thinking for the whole world, altruistically in a way, yeah. um, and, and for everybody's interest, and then the notion of diplomat, who's somebody who really is instructed by their government to look for the best deal for their own interest, it sounds incompatible. But then when you see achievements like the Paris Agreement, which, is, which was almost a perfect synergy between the science, the diplomacy, the compromise, and, and how everybody got not... No one got everything they wanted, but everybody got something. And, and so that really gives me hope as a model for other uh, negotiations. And, and I think what we need is more people that can speak the scientific language, but also can uh, resonate with the policymakers. And I don't think we're training people in that um, skill set yet. And so I think one, that that's one of the things we could, you know, in, in terms of talking about solutions, which I think this, this uh, show is about, um, actionable things that we yeah. can do is to create those uh, training and pathways. I was going to ask you, yeah, yeah. creating. I was going to say if you, I was going to, I was going to give you the benevolent dictator <laughs> uh, uh, role. If you were the benevolent dictator right. of the world, what would you do? Right. I mean, what are and get, it can be small or big, but expand on what, that or whatever, whatever you'd like. This is the world is yours, and you yes. you can control it. What what would you do? I would create for every country at the national level first, pathways that, and mechanisms that connect the scientific community with the policy and the, the diplomatic community. This sounds easy, but in, in, in reality, um, these two 
worlds mm. never cross paths and yep. unless you intentionally put them in the same room in the same conference in the same setting i did my my studies in biology for seven years of my degree and my masters i never crossed a person that was not a molecular biologist seven years because i was in a university that had all the the buildings completely you know apart and 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 i would never cross somebody from law from political science from international relations unless i would you know find them in in, in not even in, in the in the bar because we all had our own little campus uh, microcosms so for me as a scientist yeah. it would have never been possible to even imagine that this world that we are operating in today you and i existed would you would you in your world you, know, you used to connect the policy and the scientists would you have would there be a a, a rule that decisions had to be made based on science well i would say based it's a little bit of a dangerous yeah um it's 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 dangerous because science does not dictate policy there's a lot of competing interests right so right. You, and it's, it's something that i think scientists we tend to um complain when evidence or data doesn't drive the decision so of course we, we are talking about climate change today we say oh the science is so clear this is something like greta the the swedish talking about women young women science leaders greta uh, thunberg is one of them right so she says listen to the science follow the science but that is not the only thing that can dictate the action because right. you have the economic the political the social so all of those components need to be put on the balance and science needs to inform all of it but you cannot decide on the base of the science only because that will probably be be very detrimental for a lot of people in the world like if you if you take if you say okay we're going to protect this area and you 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 know about that yeah. and and you deprive the community uh, from their you know yeah, basic very, livelihood yeah, yeah. and that is a, a conflict that is not a scientific conflict because scientifically you would advise uh, to do that yeah, yeah. but then the people that would, you know, probably will be it's left very, without, without that's fish. That's a very thoughtful, smart answer to that question. Because a lot of people would just jump to, yeah, we use the science all the time. I mean, and what is science? Uh, best ex the best definition I ever heard was it's just a system of rules that keeps us from lying to each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And right. and it's kind of that's pretty good definition. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's about, you know, having evidence to make a decision. But wh what, I'm, what I'm frustrated by is that we are consciously going down a track of um of of, of self-destruction mm -hmm. uh creating an environment that our grand uh, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren won't right. like right and will cause all kinds of problems for people and their right. well-being right and we know that we know that with a very very high degree of certainty but because it doesn't fall within political election cycles, exactly, we don't seem to get traction on it. And and you know, you 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 say things and you're passionate about it for years, and then suddenly something changes, and it happens. Like plastic in the ocean is a good example. I mean, I, I got into this business because I started seeing plastic when I was diving the Japanese subs in the Sea of Japan. I was down at you know six thousand kilometers, and there was plastic garbage down there, and I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And I this was pre-marine conservation days, but but I saw evidence that there was right. there was a problem, and I kind of went back and started to get into marine conservation. And I always, you know, raised plastic as an issue. We have a guest, a good friend of mine, Deanna Cohen, did an ep episode on plastic. Mm -hmm. 
But it wasn't until like a couple of years ago the world kind of woke up, right? Yes. And plastic now is everybody yes. is talking about it. Exactly. And I mean, but we practitioners have been talking about it for decades. What was it that triggered the plastic right. discussion? Because things are happening now. Right. There's legislation being passed. There's reductions in, in inputs to the ocean. I mean, it's actually, it's actually kind of working. It's moving in the right direction anyway. What, what was it that triggered plastic? I mean, I, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, there are other things happening to the ocean that are far worse than plastic. Right. But we're not waking up to it, like, like uh, runoff. From rivers. I think it becomes a, 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 a trend. Like also, a lot of uh, sustainability programs right now are really just marketing campaigns, and and I think we have yeah, to be you're right. careful. Um, they are, aren't and, they? And yeah. a lot of it is greenwashing. It's really it's about okay. Maybe, maybe it's a different form of greenwashing, but it's greenwashing. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, like how can I do one little thing to then absolve me from <laughs> doing the bigger ones and yeah. and having you know that. Um, getting onto that buzzword, if you will, because that's uh, the, the buzz. You're a very smart lady, you know right that? Right now. <laughs> you, you, no, you, you pull these things out. Now, that you, you're right. There are companies, there are enterprises that that are using sustainability as a marketing tool while they are perhaps doing it. Exactly. And then there are companies that really want to change the world. Right. And there are individuals and leaders uh, that take responsibility and want to change the world. But uh, there's... Uh, there is the, or now they call it blue washing, you know, if it has to do uh-huh. with the ocean, yeah, that's it's called, right. it's called that's blue right. washing. That's yeah. right. So let's look, let's look at the future. Are you going to COP25 in Chile? Uh, I don't have plans for that right now, no. Because they call it the blue COP, right? It's the, the Chile is leading in, in trying to connect better the ocean. And, and they, they say that ocean has been the kind of the poor brother of the climate conversation. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, they decided to call it the Blue Cup. So hashtag Blue Cup. It's, it's also a trend. I th- Are I you going to be there? Yes. So when I get back from Antarctica, from the, from the expedition, I go straight to Santiago for, for that. And there's an Antarctic pavilion. And we're going to have, speaking of role models, there, there's going to be a photo exhibition of our trip. And the, the cohorts that came before yep, us, yep. and posters of women in Antarctica. As, as you say, we can't be what we can see. Yeah. So in the Antarctic Pavilion, there's going to be, I think, a very fun uh, exhibition and side events on on women in Antarctica specifically. But I think COP25 is really um, building up to be as well. Yeah, I, significant I, I, as COP21. Okay, in Paris. and it's got a, a big ocean dimension to it, which we've been waiting for. I mean, it's been growing. Right. Each each, right. each meeting had a little bit more. Uh, I m- I might be there, um, but I uh, I'll tell you what I'm what I'm sort of got on the on the deck here, coming over the deck. Uh, we're going to be launching a, a, a something called the Climate Adaptation uh, Scholarship Program, mm-hmm. where we're identifying uh, people for undergraduate education at the College of the Atlantic in Maine here, the number one green college in the United States. Green, not only in how it operates, but in how it trains its students. And I believe if you look at the curricula, it offers one degree in human ecology. It's probably uh, a a close cousin, if not a, uh, some kind of a sibling of science diplomacy. Exactly. I think that's the training we were talking about earlier. It's a derivative of what we're talking about, being able to negotiate all these different worlds with with clear information. So um, uh, Christine and I and and others are very excited about this. The College of the Atlantic is is, uh, willing to offer half scholarships. Mm -hmm. So we're looking to raise uh, the other half philanthropically and and bring young people and get them, uh, we want five at a time, one from each continent, and they're from indigenous communities that are being impacted by climate change. Give them the tools early in life 
to do the kind of things that, that I've been doing my whole life, which Wonderful. is which is exactly. working through there. Uh, and also staying in the water, uh, working on, uh, we found some corals, Marga, in the Pacific that uh, appear to be super corals. They uh, they can withstand these immense temperature swings. And the, the, the operating theory that we come up with, with colleagues from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution mm-hmm. at Boston University, is that the corals have naturally been exposed to El Nino fluxes mm-hmm. over millennia, because mm-hmm. El Nino is a is a natural yep. heating event that happens uh, periodically, and it could be that Darwinian evolution produced heat-resistant corals for us in yep. this part of the world, because they just are amazing. So we flew in there recently, and we're doing more work on that and, and looking at if there's interest in the country Kiribati happens to possess these corals if they wish to uh, explore the possibility they could start some uh, gardening mm-hmm. growing and if you could look at the transplanting making sure you're not bringing any new pathogens in there's a lot of things right. that you have to do to make sure that you would know to make sure it's done right mm-hmm. but I'm excited by that because there's, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the coral community about no corals in the future because the host is going to be too hot yep. uh, but there, there may be some out there and I've also uh, decided to focus on communications like this podcast mm-hmm. and we're working on some film projects because I believe that the things happen when people learn about them and, yep. and plastic I think was a combination of a lot of things you know yep. 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 Uh, but I think communication and bringing, bringing people like you and stories about the ocean to the public uh, I'm committed to and uh, I just uh, you know I want to thank you for your, what you do and your time and I'd like to invite you back on the show too. Maybe after you come back from Antarctica, you can come back and Absolutely. give us a give us a give us a <laughs> the real thing. Now yeah. I'm just speculating, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy. For, I'm happy for you because uh, Antarctica is one of my favorite places, and I love it. And, Thank uh, you. Thank you so much. Uh, yep. Say hi to it for me. Yes, I will. It's, it's got a spirit. It's got. I will a soul. say hi and happy birthday. So okay, December first, the 60th anniversary of the Antarctic Treaty. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think it's going to be also very important that we start advocating for the next thirty years so it doesn't go away. All so right. Well, that's you know, what we'll do. I tell you what, let's uh, let's you and I and Christine and others that you met here have a renaissance and let's start working together. Yes. Because uh, you know you've left AAAS, I've moved on from my previous organization, started a new one, but we still have the same spirit and. and charge and everything so and, and i think a lot of the conversations we've had internally we like we're doing right now we need to talk about this more publicly and we need to build the stories around it so science diplomacy you in i don't know we've been here for an hour you have so many stories that you are now reframing under the science diplomacy umbrella yeah. that could you know it's just there's just so much <laughs> content it's that's like, hidden in the um, in just your life experience that you never thought about <laughs> it this way it's like you know when you buy a new car and you pick out a color like white, and then suddenly you drive around and you see all the white cars everywhere, right? <laughs> right. It's like once you learn about science diplomacy, I see it everywhere. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, I think we can bring it out more and more explicitly for, for others to, to, not just to join us in the community, but also for the general audience yeah. to, to start understanding this connection and, and the importance of it. So, yeah. yes, absolutely. All right. Um, thrilled to work with you. All right. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right. <laughs>